What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm here in Zoom land as always with Bina Sharma, CEO and founder of CCU International, Vice Chair at Society for Low Carbon Technologies and International Board Member for CCS Brazil. Bina, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. How's everything in your world today, wherever you are in this world? Because I suspect you're not in the US. I'm not indeed. Thank you very much for having me today. Uh, I'm actually based in Aberdeen, Scotland, um, originally from from London, as you may be able to tell from the accent. But uh, yeah. I'm a I'm an oil and gas ex oil and gas. Uh, I've recently moved in the last few years. I've moved into the the realm of um, carbon capture, net zero, and anything that involves really low carbon technologies. I love it. No, that's actually i've i've known like one of my really good friends one of my best friends actually uh i'm from uh, from canada one of my good friends still back in calgary he uh he recently went from chevron and now works for a carbon capture company in calgary and um he you know came up on a rig you know as a rig hand and went and did engineering and i would have never in my life guessed someone like him would have went to the carbon capture side uh and like the net zero and stuff like that and so it's interesting you're starting to see more and more expertise uh transfer over into you know the the realm and and the sandbox that you live in um you know again i I know a handful of people so again i'm excited to hear the journey and um and it's funny i we actually had uh some folks that were our neighbors recently moved back to London and they couldn't wait. They were tired of Houston. They want nothing to do with it. And now they're happy and we're going to visit them uh, this, this winter in London. And so I'm super pumped for that, but uh, um, no, it, you know, thanks for doing it. What time? So here in Houston, it's eight twelve. What time is it where you are? Yeah, we're actually two twelve in the afternoon. So oh, that's uh, not bad. Okay. it's nearly officially the weekend here. Yeah. Okay. Well, Hopefully this is a good way to kick off the weekend. I uh, I often, a friend of mine is, is Rob Barnett. He works for Bloomberg and uh, I've had him on the podcast and he it'll be weird times of the evening. And I'm like, man, like I'm, I really apologize. We can start earlier, but I think he's a bit of a night owl and uh, he's over based in London there at Bloomberg. So it's, uh, it's always interesting to have people across the waters, but um, I do want to give a big shout out to Fernando Hernandez. Uh, he's the one who made the, the connection and uh, I actually had him on the show a couple months ago, and, and we had an amazing conversation around energy, slightly different than what we'll have today. Um, but but again, and for the audience, it's really funny. If, if, if you don't take anything away from this podcast today, here's the one tip I have. Check your junk mail, <laughs> because Bina <laughs> had emailed me several times, and she probably thought I blew her off. And uh, yeah, come to find out all her emails that were very polite and and like saying hey where are you how come you haven't responded we're in my junk email so uh first thing thank you fernando for the introduction second of all the audience check your junk mail right now because there may be something important in there so uh, thanks for your patience i'm curious how do you know fernando interestingly so fernando is actually um uh he's what we call a global scot um, and he's really an ambassador for Scotland. And as I'm based in Scotland, we have a really we have a really cool ecosystem here, particularly for businesses um, and startups. So Fernando was actually actually linked to me via his uh, global 
Global Scott hat. And he does a lot over in Houston for Scotland, generally for, for mm -hmm. the businesses and tying up, you know, the relationships between the US and Scotland. So that was actually how we met. We met with his, his kind of his remit as a Global Scot. But the introduction to Fernando really was um, around his knowledge and his background in the low carbon technology space. Um, he's very well versed and not just from a US perspective, from a global perspective, his connections go well beyond the US. And actually, mm. Fernando was also he's also the um, the founding. He's the, one of the founding members, along with me, of the Society for Low Carbon Technologies. So uh, that that's what kind of has, has it's brought us together because we had very similar um, we come from similar backgrounds, um, but we also had uh, have very similar ambitions as to the way in which we think technology around the low carbon space um, should be deployed, the kind of support that's required around it. So the purpose for actually building this particular board uh, or this particular um, society was really to bring together global technologies, global solutions for the, for the problems that we have. You know, we're all trying to get to net zero. Um, every country obviously has different ambitions, but ultimately we all want to get to the same place. So it's mm -hmm. essential that we collaborate. And I actually, instead of using the word collaborate, I tend to tend to use the word co-create. Um, I think it goes that one step further than collaboration. A lot, a lot of people mm. talk about collaboration, but very little of it is done, particularly when competition is involved. Um, if there are opportunities, typically you get a lot of competition. But actually, if you come together yeah. and you co-create, then you're more likely to get the result that you're looking for. So the purpose of the board really was to bring together and not just people from this industry, but we've got people on the board from all different industries we've got an industry advisory board and that could be from you know your logistics to your retail to you know energy as well and what we're saying is we've all got to get to the same place so it shouldn't we shouldn't discriminate between industries and actually every industry can bring their own expertise to to, to come to a solution to the problem well i think I mean, to that point, you bring uh, that, that's a very healthy approach to the conversation and to the, the solution, because, you know, here in the U.S., um, there's clearly or even globally, there's always this tug of war, right? It's like us versus them or it's always trying to, um, you know, there, there's 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 this divide oftentimes and mainly on the extreme ends of the spectrum. But to, to have that co-creation and ultimately it's going to take all of us and that's why the tagline that i have at the end of the podcast is we is greater than me because not a single energy source not a single technology not a single solution to a certain problem is going to solve all of our challenges which is ultimately providing energy to the world right like getting every any everyone out of energy poverty and hopefully leaving the next generation to a better place than we had it and which has remained a challenge but at the end of the day i think it's interesting and 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 very uh, a healthy approach to 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 solving these challenges and you know again on this on the carbon capture side and net zero like there's so much potential there um and if you can pull expertise from different verticals within the energy space and maybe not even energy uh some you know folks that aren't tied to energy might have an interesting perspective and look through a different lens that can that can provide some out-of-the-box thinking which i think is fascinating in itself um that's really neat. Um, so what what would you say, I mean, just out of curiosity, since starting uh, that initiative, what, what's been the biggest takeaway or something that has surprised you or just have you been pleasantly uh, happy with to see actually something in motion or something that has actually come from it? Or is it still in the infancy stage where a lot of it is meetings and, and trying to figure out next steps? 
It is, yeah. We're still very early stage and we haven't quite, we haven't officially launched. But one thing that has surprised, and I'm not sure why, um, but um, I guess it has surprised all of us, is the the desire for so many people to be counted towards this and wanting to make a difference. Um, The other thing that has come as a really big surprise is the, um, the diversity in the group. Um, And actually Uh, we had a meeting yesterday. We were just talking about it, like more than half of the the founding board members are female um, and from diverse backgrounds. And that's really unusual in this space. I mean, I quite often talk, I I talk on this topic quite a lot because there are very few people um, that look like me, that talk like me in this, in this industry. And Mm. if I go back sort of, you know, 25 years ago, I started in the oil and gas industry. And it's interesting. You touched on this point where it doesn't really matter what background you come from. I come from a psychology background. So completely, um, off the cuff, you know, not not engineering, not technical, but I come from a psychology background and my specialism really was in in developing behavioral change programs for the oil and gas ah. industry. Um, okay. So my first assignment when I was 21 years old was Nigeria. You know, it was me and 6,000 men on, a, on an LNG plant in Nigeria. So really diverse background. Um, but coming into the industry wasn't when you're 21 years old, you kind of put your hands up and say, yes, I can do anything. You don't think you don't even give it a second thought. And then you think, what have I just done? Um, but, you know, years of being in the industry and moving to, into other industries as well, I became very used to it. It was very natural for me to be around, you know, um, predominantly men mm-hmm. and uh, moving into this low carbon space. I kind of expected that there would be more women in this space than there are in in generally in energy and I've not found that to be true so quite often I speak on you know I will speak on panels I will speak at conferences all over the world and I will be the only woman and more so I will be the only person of color as well so I would step off a panel and I will have women in the audience who will approach me and say you know that's it's really inspiring how did you get here and you know you're the only woman here and I kind of look behind me and say oh yeah so I am the only woman because I'm so used to it it doesn't really phase me but then I started to realize you know actually there is a desire for more women to to move into the industry and I quite often talk it talk about it as being um and certainly when I speak to a lot of young professionals who are looking to get into the space I quite often say to them this is your opportunity you know in my days I wasn't I was up against you know your typical um white male who had 20 years of experience versus little me, who's just entered the industry straight out of university. So it was very competitive. And if there were biases there, then I didn't get, I was never counted. But mm. now we're at a time when actually the level, the, the playing field has completely leveled because I'm now longer, no, I'm now no longer up against, you know, a white man who has been in the industry for 20 years, because this is a completely new thing. And so I quite often will say to, you know, particularly to young people, people from diverse backgrounds, this is your opportunity to be counted because now the playing field is level. Um, And so that something, particularly with the society, as we were discussing, you know, um, the board members, and it wasn't deliberate. It just so happened that we ended up with, you know, five, six females, um, majority of us from very diverse backgrounds, not just in the way that we look and the way that we talk, but in the regions that we come from and in the way that our thought process is as well. So mm. that, as you can imagine, enables discussion like we've never had before on yeah. a lot a lot of boards, boards that I've sat on, you never get this diverse thinking. And that's exactly what we need. We are stepping out of what we've done day in, day out. 
and now we're trying to get a different result so therefore we have to do things differently and in yeah. order to do things differently we have to step out of our comfort zone and bring in diverse thinking hey everyone sorry to interrupt but this episode is sponsored by 10x technologies pushing the boundaries of chemistry 10x is innovating the future of the oil and gas industry with their proprietary materials based technology solutions with cutting-edge products like NanoClear, custom-designed nanofluids engineered to maximize the production of new completions and rejuvenate existing wells, 10X is driving a revolution in oil extraction. Meet Microhold, a specially engineered microparticle slurry that optimizes frac efficiency, props microfracs, and triggers far-field diversion every well, every time sees the benefits. And if you're worried about frac hits, 10X has you covered with no hit, an innovative technology that mitigates frac hits via in-situ pressurization reaction. It's protection where you need it most. Then there's Sandbond, a sand consolidation chemical solution that's just another example of 10X's commitment to practical field-ready solutions. And let's not forget about Seraflow, a greener, cost-effective, proprietary blend of design materials to banish paraffin issues once and for all. That's 10X, where innovation meets application in the oil and gas industry. Find out more about their groundbreaking solutions at pumpmoreoil.com and be on the lookout for five. Yeah, you heard it, five new products launching soon. Now, let's get back to the show. No, that is fascinating. Actually, that ties well into the, the previous, uh, one of my previous episodes I released was Kim Alley. She's out of Washington, DC, I believe, and she focuses in DE&I, uh, -E specifically in oil and gas. Um, and where she started, actually, she went to, I think it was a hospital, and I'm, forgetting is it was somewhere in the middle east she went over there and it wasn't it was this was before she started in, in oil and gas but she went over there to um essentially bring in a dni program into the hospital and and because of the overwhelming success that she had then and then she got into oil and gas because being exposed to a lot of it over there um mm -hmm. which then she now brings that back to the u.s through her experience and really has done a phenomenal job of of helping companies create those types of programs um and she can obviously if you listen to the episode for anyone out there listening i encourage you to if this is something that's interesting to you but i just think in like when you think diversity it doesn't necessarily mean you know what you look like or where you're from but just the diverse perspectives and and thoughts and approaches to solving solutions i think is is extremely important um and so no I, i'm glad you touched on that i think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting point and I don't know if that ties in at all to to what you know what you did, but um, I noticed, and I wanted to say congrats before we move on for being the winner of the 2023 Accelerate Her Award. Um, can you share what that is and and how one might become the next winner if any um, ambitious females are out there? Like I would love to follow her footsteps. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, I I do get asked the question a lot, a lot, and you know there have been uh, multiple. Uh, there are multiple awards out there which um, people of all backgrounds can go for. The Accelerate Her program award, awards program um, is specifically targeted at, at women um, in in the tech industry, um, of which there are very few <laughs> in comparison to obviously men. So it's an opportunity really for um, for yourself to be counted. Um, and it's not the most difficult thing to do. I mean, women typically do find it quite difficult to put themselves out there for fear of judgment, et cetera. Not that anybody else isn't, but I think 
certainly women in the tech industry do find it that much more difficult because you know you are surrounded mm. predominantly by men so this is an opportunity really to say okay this is your chance to shine without having the pressures of um being surrounded by you know your male counterparts this is for women by women um and actually the award was for the environment space so kind of four mm -hmm. categories of awards the environment space and that was really uh, an opportunity to to really stand up and say i want to be counted and actually this is going somewhere you know the tech that i'm i'm delivering to industry is really important for the environment and that ultimately led to actually um being picked up by parliament by scottish parliament and we were given a um what we call a parliamentary motion so there was a mention and a certificate in parliament uh, on the actual achievement which is not just great for women women in the tech space but also for environment so the award was for making you know the contribution to uh, Scotland's net zero target um, wow. but certainly it's an annual award it's you know it's open to anybody here um, yeah. and I would definitely say it's an opportunity but also it's not just awards you know it's not just you put up on a pedestal and say well done you're doing great things but the yeah. program itself is designed to support women to get to that stage where they can comfortably pitch in front of hundreds of people and the 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 mentoring and the and the and the guidance and the support that you receive, not just from the team Accelerate Her, but also from the wider ecosystem. One of the things I came away from there was I've developed this kind of little ecosystem of women around me who are equally as ambitious, some earlier, some latter stages in their business. But obviously the ability to be able to inspire people, you know, once they meet me, they speak to me, I've won awards, they come to me and they say, well, look, you know, if somebody like her can do it, then there's no reason why we can't. And that's yeah. the idea It's to inspire other women to say, I want to start up my own business. I want to do something in tech. I too can win awards and I too can be counted. Wow. So that's amazing. And again, a big congratulations there. That's, I think a lot of women would definitely look up to someone like you for, for guidance or inspiration, but what are some, some like to add value to the, to the listeners out there, what are some sort of actionable takeaways or, say like the biggest piece of advice for someone who's, you know, maybe a female who's been in energy in, in the corporate world and she has an amazing idea and she really wants to start, you know, start her own company. Um, I mean, do you have any sort of just again, tips or things that sure. can put the right mindset in place to take that leap of faith? Yeah, I think um, individuals, you know, have different mindsets about what they are and are not capable of doing. And certainly there are, with me coming from a psychology background, I probably understand this better than anyone. But quite often we are told that we can't. Um, a lot of, and I still hear it as a woman and particularly as a woman of colour, I still hear a lot of, well, you can't do that. Well, people like you don't do that. You know, I've had um, people in the industry say, well, somebody like you shouldn't be running a company like this. Um, or what's somebody like you in the, doing in this industry? So, I, and I still get that on a daily basis sometimes. And I quite oh. often say that I could, I could probably, yeah, I, I mean, I could probably write. You know, at one point I said I could write a book on it. Now I think I could write a series of books on it. So <laughs> You should have <laughs> your I own podcast talking about I it. I should, shouldn't I? Yeah. <laughs> now there's yeah. a thought. I would um, love to I help think... and see that. <laughs> there you go. So I think that certainly women are, um, we are more susceptible for being, you know, we're more likely to, to feel like we're being scrutinized because we are women. Um, mm. But I think it's, majority of it is mindset. Um, and I know many women who have, you know, 
got to a certain stage in their life and then felt like they couldn't go any further because of the barriers that were put up in front of them. You know, we hear things like women get, you know, there's very few company, women start um, the number of startups, you know, there's very low numbers of women that have startups. And then on top of that, it's very difficult to get investment. I think in Scotland, we're looking at something like 2% of all investments go to women. So that's a huge number. And when you start seeing numbers like that, it does affect your confidence. And you do start yeah. to say, well, what are the chances of me being successful if I can't get, if I'm less likely to get investment than, you know, my average male counterpart. So I think it, in a way it's about removing the negativity because there is a lot of it and I know that's not easy it's easier said than done but I for my for me I think my secret is really surrounding myself with people who tell me I can do it and yeah. what I call my enablers um, as opposed to surrounding myself with people who tell me I can't I surround yeah. myself with the people who tell me I can and they provide me with some of those opportunities yeah. and I quite often talk about this so there's um interestingly there's um a workshop that I ran back in February for Energy Voice and it was focused uh it was a conference called the Future North Sea and they asked me to run a panel session uh, sorry not a panel session a workshop focused on carbon capture and the title of the session was carbon capture um utilization carbon capture storage or both and the idea was that we had 30 people from the industry that joined this workshop and we would all kind of workshop out these questions uh, the answers to these questions and there were 30 people from the industry all within the sort of carbon capture space or an interest in the carbon capture space. And actually, I was quite surprised by the end of it. I knew there was something different about the workshop. But by the end of it, the editor of the of the Energy Voice, who was in the room at the time, he said to me, you do realize that there was, you know, around 40, 45 percent women in this session. We've not really had that before. And that interested me. And I thought there must be something in this. And a lot of the women that I spoke to said, actually, all they need sometimes is just somebody like me to, to show that it's possible. You can yeah. do it. And that provides them with the inspiration. They see that a woman's up there, woman is up there in a, in a generally male dominated space who's running this key workshop. And that gave them the inspiration to say, hey, OK, I want to join this workshop and I want to be inspired by it. Yeah. And then that led on to something else. So actually, in September, we are running um, a, uh, a conference, a one day conference, which is entitled Women in New Energy. Okay. Uh, interestingly, the acronym is WINE, and that wasn't deliberate, by the way. <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> but it's an opportunity to inspire, not just inspire women, but also bring. So it's not a it's not an event for women with women. It is an event um, predominantly, yes, for women, but also for men to learn from these, some of the experiences that women have had in the industry. And also what we're looking to do is bringing men onto some of these panel sessions to talk about how they have championed women into leadership positions, because there are many out there. When I think about my journey, I started in oil and gas and ultimately I wouldn't have ended up going to Nigeria, for example, or, you know, I spent a couple of years in Norway if it wasn't a, a man in the industry that pushed me forward and said yes you are able to do this and you're more than capable of doing this wow. and then I think about what I'm surrounded with and I am surrounded you know my husband who's also in the industry and then I've got two teenage boys who are massively supportive of what I do so wow. when people say yes yeah, it's, it's people quite often will say you know um what it, what is your strength what's your superpower and I say it's my network. It's my support network. If mm -hmm. I have negativity within that, then I remove that negativity because for most women like me, once that negativity creeps in, 
it's very, very difficult to remove it. And if you have my superpower is the people that I have around me. So I would say to a woman that is looking to come into the industry um, or start up on their own, step out the corporate, that corporate comfort zone is surround yourself by people who can support you, surround yourself by people who enable you. And more importantly, surround yourself with those people that will do nothing but champion you champion you and one of those people for me has been Fernando Hernandez you know he hasn't hesitated to kind of say when an opportunity comes up he hasn't hesitated to say you need to speak to Bina or Bina this is an opportunity for you to step forward and I'll give you an example of this Um, a couple of weeks ago I was asked to do a fireside chat um, for female entrepreneurs in this low carbon space and they came to me and they said to me, look, we want to do a fireside chat, but we ideally we want to do it with three female founders in the space. Um, is there anybody else that you can recommend? And I thought, yeah, of course there is. And I went away and I had to think and I thought, actually, I don't know anyone else. So I reached out to Fernando and I said to Fernando, Fernando, is there anybody that you know in this space that could join me on this on this fireside chat? Because ideally they're looking for about three women for this. And he said, yes, there definitely is. And then he went hmm. away and had to think and said, Actually, no, there isn't. So that was a little bit upsetting for me because I thought, what are we doing wrong? You know, why are there not more people out there like me? And I had this conversation with him and it was a little bit of a kind of a heart to heart. And I said, Fernando, this is actually quite upsetting for me. Why is it this bad? You know, Hmm. Um, and he said to me, Bina, do you know what? Actually, it's, you know, really, you should be turning this into a positive and saying, right now, if it is only you, then guess what? The stage is all yours. And, you know, he helped me really think about, okay, agree that it is upsetting that we don't have more women doing this. But ultimately, this is your opportunity to shine. If there's nobody else doing it, it's going to be easier for you to shine. So take that opportunity. And instead of feeling uncomfortable, I started to feel a little bit more comfortable. And that's what we need. We need those champions. So surround yourself by those people. Right. No, that's that's so important. And, And it reminds me. Uh, a very well-known author here in the U.S. is Tim Ferriss. And I listened to his podcast and years and years ago. He said, you know, you're the average of the five people you hang around the most. And and there's a lot of different sayings, but but conceptually, it makes the most sense. It's surround, like yourself, surround yourself with positivity, with people who help enable you, who encourage you, who if you think you have an idea and you're kind of hesitant, will help push you and support you. Um, and you you made a couple key points. And one of them was your support system at home. Um, you know, my wife, I, I think, you know, be behind every strong woman is a strong or like a strong wife is a strong husband and every behind every strong husband is a strong wife. And I think that part is absolutely critical. Um, I know there's, uh, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jamie and Maciel who run flipping the barrel here in, in, uh, Houston and Maciel is now in, in Mexico with, uh, she's with Slumberger. And um, they actually are founders of this of this company, and they've completely blown up. They have oil and gas backgrounds. One's an engineer, and one comes from the sales side. But um, you know, it's interesting because they have done such an amazing job in their careers. And I know both of their husbands, who are also both in in oil and gas, and they are just such a good support system. So I'm curious, Bina. You said you've got your husband, and you've got your two teenage boys. Um, how would you say the support system at home has that helped accelerate or has that helped provide you with sort of that that 
fundamental uh, support and framework. I mean, I'm sure you go to your husband sometimes is like, oh, like, I can't believe I'm doing this. And how important is, is, is your, is your home life for all this? Yeah, I think, um, I think my home life is probably quite unique in comparison to most people. Um, you know, although I come from a, I would say I come from a fairly traditional sort of Bangladeshi upbringing. Um, although I was born and brought up in in London, um, you know, both of us actually come from quite traditional backgrounds where women typically would stay at home and look after the kids. And, you know, and and my actually growing up, I was one of five kids okay. um, and my father passed away when I was six months old and my mom was pregnant with my younger brother. So she brought up five kids on her own. So although wow. she came from a very, um, you know, traditional background, actually she had to be the father you know to five yeah. children um and so that's probably where i got most of my inspiration you know she, there was no you know she didn't have the option of of handing us over to somebody else or doing something to, you know she had to work she had to make sure that all her five kids were fed and clothed and went to school and so that probably gave me some inspiration and i you know it got to a point where i thought well, I don't want to have to continue this cycle. So I actually put myself, I put myself through university um, and I thought I need to get out of this, this cycle and put myself through university and then obviously ended up in the oil and gas industry. Um, mm. But, and that's, that's predominantly where I, that, well, that is where I met my husband. Um, and because we were from the same background, same sort of um, traditional cultural background, um, you automatically assumed that you would just fit into that culture. Um, but even yeah. though he came, he came from that, uh, the background where, you know, his, his mum was at home and she did look after the kids and dad went out to work, but he never once expected me to do that. And I think it was seen as a, a and that is a very unusual for Asians. It's very, very unusual. Um, okay. especially 25, 30 years ago. So yeah. I guess with him being in the industry and having to travel quite a lot, um, particularly when the boys were quite young, um, you know, I was at home and I didn't have a choice. I did have to be at home and I did have to run around, do part-time work and jump between one school run to the other. And, um, oh. and obviously massively appreciative of the fact that his career was able to progress because I was in the background able to support him and when I got to a stage where I said you know what I actually want to set up something of my own he said to me well this is your time you know you've spent the last however many years supporting me looking after the kids making sure that I could travel making sure that I could do late meetings and you know not having to worry about household chores or doing things for the kids running around after the kids and this is why I am where I am now therefore now I can take a slightly a step back obviously the boys are older now they're 16 and 17 years old so they're very self-sufficient but because he enabled me to do that you know and I do have late nights and I do have very early mornings and I am working on the weekends and you know he doesn't complain he never complains yeah. um, and sometimes as a woman you worry am I neglecting my family am I neglecting my kids um, and because the kids have seen that they are equally if not more so supportive you know, and that is essential. They've seen that that sort of their upbringing has shown that that my husband has been hundred percent it more so actually hundred hundred and ten percent supportive. And he always says to me, I remember once when I said when I bring an opportunity and I say I've got this opportunity to do this, and he always says to me, Well, what's the worst thing that can happen if you if you do it? What's yeah. the worst thing that's going to happen? And I'm like, Actually, yeah. So the worst thing that happens is you come away from there. Maybe you've failed, but you've learned a huge amount, and you yeah. will take that forward and make sure that you are successful in the next thing that you do, because ultimately you will know how not to do it. 
So mm-hmm. every step has been, and there's been failings, don't get me wrong. You know, we don't yeah. speak about them often, but there have been some real, real bad failings. But each and every one of those, he says to me now, well, now you know what not to do. You yeah. won't be making the same mistake again. So that is really important. You have to be allowed to make mistakes mm-hmm. because what you don't want is somebody behind you saying, well, okay, go away and do it. And then you make the mistake. Maybe you fell and they say, well, told you so. Or, I don't think you'll be doing that again. You know, so it's important that you get you, you get that shove, you get that little push and say, okay, pick yourself up and go again. Yeah, no, that's, what's your husband's name? Deshant. Deshant. Well, from one supportive husband to another, give him a big handshake and a hug. Cause I think that's amazing. And, uh, you know, it, again, I, 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 this, it, it, and again, it's certainly not about me, but it reminds me of my wife and I's dynamic when she, so she was oil and gas when she graduated, she was with CNRL, which is a big Canadian oil and gas company. And then we, when we moved to Houston, she, you know, jumped right back into corporate oil and gas, um, to which down here she, she experienced, and, and she's a, a female of color as well. And she, um, she had a, a, not a great experience down here, but it was a blessing in disguise. Um, you know, it was, you know, there was a time where she was in her office and she was so ambitious to learn and to, to advance. And her boss said, look, just, just sit there and look pretty. Like you don't have to do all this work. And like, that just was like a punch to her stomach. She's like, are you kidding me right now? Like, no. And so anyway, she went back to university, got some more schooling and now she runs her own company. But I say all that to say is, you know, I, I, you know, I, she's had some failings and stuff like you mentioned and uh you know for me to be there and and say like let's let's i I always tell us like let's do some fear setting okay so if this if this happens and it doesn't happen the way you want it then what and it's like oh well then we you know we may be a little bit out of money or we or you know i let this person down okay well then what like what happens then and then once you like start going down it's like even the worst case scenario if you go down the chain, it really isn't that bad. Yeah. Um, so again, it's it's a mindset thing. And the last thing, I, I promise we'll talk about carbon capture, but I think this is, we just kind of went down a different avenue and, <laughs> I, did. and I think it's great, but it's okay. So one last thing I want to talk about, because I think this is really interesting, especially for women out there. And what what do you, how do you respond to women that come up to you and say, Bina, I, I'm however old, let's say 25 years old. I, I have a, you know, a wonderful husband we're thinking about starting a family, but I'm I'm like, I'm on this rocket ship with my career. I want to start a company in a couple of years. And I just the thought of having a family would just completely put that on pause. But I but I want to have kids because that's my calling. Like, as a male, that that's not something that we deal with. Obviously, we're there and we support but 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 the reality is, is like, we're not the one carrying the baby and then have to be a mother to kids. What's your response to that? Because I think that to me would be the hardest decision to make in yeah. life. And I don't know as a male how you would even consider approaching that. Yeah, I think it is a different. I, I think from a very young age, I've always had ambition. I've always had the drive and the ambition to do things differently, but also excel in whatever I do. So it could be the most menial of tasks. Um, so a lot of it is to do with personality. But I do, I do get women who say to me, you know, I'm starting this. I'm starting this journey and I've got so far planning to have kids next year. I don't know if it's going to be right for me yet. Maybe I should wait. Um, And in all honesty, I think, again, it comes down to your support system. If you've got the support system in place. Now, I remember when I had my kids, you know, uh, and we did a lot of travel. So I didn't I wasn't necessarily close by to family that family could help. And certainly when I moved up here to the North Sea, you know, I started looking at 
corporate roles and almost everything I looked at was offshore. Um, my kids were, you know, 10, 11 at that time. And I just came to the realization, I can't actually do this because I can't work in the corporate world because if I go offshore, I've got no one to look after my kids. I don't have family around me. Um, and actually I came, when I came to the realization that starting up my own business would actually give me a lot more freedom than what I thought it would, because I think people have mm. this, um, this vision that once you start your, your business, you're working day and night, you know, you're, you're literally um, working to get the pennies into the business. It doesn't necessarily have to be like that. Um, and for me, one of the things that I like about having my own business is I do have flexibility. So yeah. I quite often, people quite often see that I send, send emails. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the thing to do, but send emails out five o'clock in the morning and sometimes 12 o'clock at night. But I say to people, and, and quite often I will get friends and family say to me, why are you working such long hours? But then, you know, my family know me, I might wake up in the morning, I might do emails from five till seven. And then yeah. I'll take a couple of hours out and do a bit of housework or maybe do some cooking. And, you know, I've got the flexibility to be able to do that. I'll go out and do my shopping. I'll make sure I keep the weekends clear for the kids. Mm. So I think that with starting your own business and thinking about starting a family, actually, there there is a lot of commitment, obviously, to particularly for newborns. There is a lot of commitment. But it's essential that you put the right support structure in place for yourself that works. And yeah. when you start your business, if you're thinking of starting or you've got a career that's going at a million miles an hour and you want to ensure that you see that progression. I mean, I know when I, you know, one of my kids, when I fell pregnant, I worked for a big, a big major. And as soon as I announced I was pregnant, I started being left out of meetings. Um, and mm. at the time, you know, I was quite young. I didn't really understand why it was happening. It upset me. And actually, I didn't go, end up going back to that company because I just thought I don't want to be treated like that. And yeah. it was the best thing that happened to me because it enabled me to really think about that time that I had with my kids really made me think about what I wanted to do once I was able to. And I think you use that. That's an opportunity. Use that time to really think about what you want to do. Times have changed now. There is a lot more support particularly in the large corporates for women who do have children and yeah. want to come back to work and want to continue their careers. I know st stuff still happens and there are biases, but ultimately we're in an era now where those things are not acceptable. And mm. in my days, if I spoke up about it, it wasn't necessarily welcome. Um, and I might have been seen to be complaining or moaning or you know, going, oh, poor me. Um, but nowadays it's completely different. And so those are the really the two things. If you've got ambitions, those ambitions don't change. Um, the goalposts might move slightly, but yeah. ultimately there's not many of us that know where we want to be in five years time, in 10 <laughs> years time. We, right. ha we think we know, but yeah. you know, life takes so many different paths. And I hear of women that say, I want to focus on my career. I don't want to have kids. And then they go off and have kids and they say, I couldn't think of anything else that I would want to do than to look after these children until they are ready to leave home. So yeah. you don't know. And unless you explore it, you're never going to know. But one mm. thing you should never have is regrets. Um, you yeah. need to put the, sh the structure, the support and the process in place to enable you to do the things that you want to do. And mostly that is to explore really what you want to do. Because I tell yeah. you one thing, when your kids get to an age, like how, what my kids have got to, the world is your oyster because I now no longer have to look after those boys. They look after themselves. And now yeah. I'm like, I can do all the things that I wanted to do without having to worry about, should I have a family now? Should I wait? You know, and that, this is one of the reasons why I had my kids quite young. So mm. uh, it, because I knew, and I had them quite close together because I thought to myself, 
if I'm going to have one child and take a couple of years off, I don't want to take a couple of years off, have a second child and then take another couple of years off. I'm just going to have them close together. So they're, they're, you know, 18 months apart. And I thought I'll get the parenthood thing done, dusted (laughs) out of the way. I was lucky there were two boys. So they get on and they're quite close in age. Um, So, you know, there's, there's no cat fighting in my house, thankfully. (laughs) Um, But now, you know, they support each other. They get on with it. They're, they're there for each other. And it enables me to do what I need to do in order to look after my business, but also look after my family at the same time. Wow. No, that's, that's inspiring. And I think any listener out there, female, male, um, or whoever, uh, I think those are just such strong words and, and just, again, things to think about for your own family and, and for, you know, if, if someone out there, uh, and you're a male and, and perhaps your wife is, is considering this, it's tell her to listen to this or reach out to, to Bina because clearly, um, you have such a, such a good framework of, of how to sort of approach these different things. So thank you for that answer. I think that's super powerful. Um, Let's move on to the carbon capture side. I know we pretty much burned up like almost an hour, but this this has been a very fantastic conversation. So thank you for being patient, all the listeners out there. Um, So let's talk about carbon capture. So earlier I mentioned, um, you know, CEO and co-founder of CCU International. What Let's start off just real high level. When, when When people say carbon capture, can you explain... Because when I like a lot of times people think here, especially in the U.S., it's like, okay, well, we're there's crushed carbon, and then you know companies like Oxy are are pumping mm-hmm. it down hole to produce more oil. I mean, there's so much more to it. So how would you how would you explain to someone who's not really familiar with like what carbon capture really is? Sure. Um, so just to let your listeners know as well, I don't come from a technical background and I'm not an engineer. Um, so hopefully I can, I'm able to explain this in about as simple terms as, as, as I had to understand it. But yeah. um, my, my background really is, is focused on um, education. I do a lot of educational, a lot of training. Um, and that's predominantly what I did for the oil and gas industry, the psychology behind behavioral change. And I educated people in order to get them to change their behaviors for a specific person, for mm. a specific person purpose. Yeah. So with carbon capture, really, my my journey started when I started exploring more the environmental side. When I moved up to Scotland, I was quite surprised by how much we do do here in Scotland in comparison to England. And um, and my interest grew and grew and grew. And I thought this is actually the future of, you know, the oil and gas industry will still be going for a very long time. But actually, if we are going to get to where we need to get to with net zero, then this is the future. So I stepped into the space, into the sustainability net zero space. And I started doing more stuff around the educational, why it's important to businesses. Um, why is it important for their survival? Why is it important for, for competition? Why is it, you know, to be competitive? Why is it important to be able to bid on tenders and what's happening further up the chain? What's happening government from government's perspective? Mm-hmm. And got to a point where a lot of the stuff I was doing was around training and businesses quite often, I mean, majority of businesses I spoke to speak to, they don't even understand what the term net zero means, certainly don't understand what it means to their business. Mm. Um, so a lot of that educational piece behind it and lots of people automatically assume that, well, okay, if I don't do what I need to do to reduce my emissions, then I can just offset, I can buy trees, I can, you know, and then there's that educational piece behind, well, yes, you can buy trees, but as you may know, and some of your listeners might know, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of trees in Canada burnt down, which belonged to were offset for some of the major companies, you know, um, including a major oil operator. So we've come to the realization now that, okay, we can't just put the blame onto somebody else, we need to do something about this. And the whole science based targets of getting to net zero, the whole premise is it 
of it is about reducing your carbon footprint by 90%. So net zero can only be achieved if, for example, you're emitting 100 tons of CO2 and you reduce that by 90%, then you've got the option to offset. So we shouldn't even be talking about offsets until we've reduced 90%. Uh... So there's a massive amount of under misunderstanding. But what was happening as we were talking to businesses, they said, okay, I want to offset. Can you advise where I can offset these carbon emissions? And realistically, I couldn't because none of it was, I don't consider as being genuine. There's no framework. There's no regulation behind it. It's completely, right. it's just a black market at the moment. So I said, I cannot comfortably recommend somewhere that you can offset. And I wouldn't recommend trees because last year in Scotland, in one night, you know, 8 million trees blew down in storms. So you can go away and you can buy your trees. Um, and but, but ultimately, there's no guarantee that those trees are still going to be there in a year's time, two years time. So yeah. what can we find that could potentially guarantee that we are actually making that difference? We are actually taking CO2 carbon out of the air. And one of those things was carbon capture. So there are two types of carbon capture. One is uh, the technology might be exactly the same, but there's obviously carbon capture that takes industry emissions directly from flue or chimney stacks. So if you imagine you see these big chimney stacks that emit gases into the atmosphere you can tap into those and those are your direct flue and chimney emissions and then you've got the other option where you do something called direct um direct air capture and that is literally right. taking the technology and putting these huge vacuums to suck up everything um and there's a lot of question around that because you're not just sucking up co2 you're sucking up everything else so the per percentage the concentration of co2 is very low um and it, you can compare in comparison to the energy consumption that's being used. It might be crit heavily criticized, which it, which it is at the moment. And that's to be right. honest, the tech, I don't think the technology is quite there yet, but it might get there someday. That's the whole purpose of, you know, advancing technology. Right. What we do is our, our theory really is that we have so many direct emissions. Uh, so we have so many direct point sources, what we call them point sources, like those that directly emit into the atmosphere. Right. is that we should be stopping those from going into the atmosphere before we're dealing with the historic CO2. So uh, we tap in. So we our technology taps into those flu stacks. So quite often I call it as if you, in medical terms, you would often quite, you know, doctors would always prefer prevention rather than treatment. Yes. So for us, we do the prevention part before it enters the atmosphere. Direct air capture will do the do the treatment part. Okay, it's in the atmosphere. Let's do something with it now. Let's capture it. So mm. what we do is we typically tap into those flue stacks and we take the all the gases out of that flue stack. We run it through our technology, separate out CO2 because CO2 is your is your main greenhouse gas. That's the stuff that stops all the nasty stuff from leaving our atmosphere. So mm. we recognize over time that what's happened is we've just got too much of it. It's there's an imbalance. So and that's a combination of burning fossil fuels but it's also a combination of deforestation because the trees are what sequester the co2 right. so we've got this massive imbalance in the environment because co2 isn't bad and this is the misconception we quite often have what do we use co2 for well we need it for breathing for example you know we need it the plants need it for photosynthesis we need plants to survive on animals yeah. need plants to survive on um, and then you think about all the other uses that we have for CO2. We use it in fire extinguishers, for example. We use it to keep our salads fresh. You know, that's the whole reason why you can go to the supermarket one day a week rather than every day, because this stuff can stay fresh because of CO2. You look yeah. at COVID vaccinations, your vaccinations for the for the health service and medical industry. It keeps those fresh. It keeps those at the right temperature for longer. 
And then the other utilization elements, which most people don't understand, is that we use it for our commodity chemicals. So methanol, ethanol, um, the Coca-Colas and the Dr. Peppers of the world use it for their carbonated drinks process. And then yeah. I don't know if you remember, but I think it was not last year, the year before we had a beer shortage. That was a CO2 shortage. Oh, so, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. so now, I didn't know that. <laughs> right. So now you might ask me the question. Well, OK, if we have had a CO2 shortage for the last however many years, why are we taking the CO2 and putting it underground? Why are we sequestering it and putting it un- into storage? Right. That's going to be your first question, which everybody asks. Yeah. But the reason why we do that is because the technology that we're using is very dated. We've been using technology for the last 25 years, which really hasn't changed much. And mm. it is quite you know, the substances that we're using in them is quite hazardous. So to then try and justify, you know, if the Coca-Cola's of the world said, I want you to capture, I want to use captured CO2. I don't want to use, you know, CO2 clean. I want to use captured CO2. But if you're using a hazardous substance, potentially a carcinogenic substance to capture that CO2, then I think Coca-Cola drinkers would have a problem with that. So mm. that technology is dated. But the reason why we still use that technology is because we've got 25 years of learning. You know, and I speak to some major companies and I ask them this question, why are you still using this technology? And they say, well, because we've got 25 years of learning about this technology. Who is going to pull the plug and say, guess what? There's a better way to do this with a technology that doesn't do as much damage to the environment or to people. Or Mm. actually, there's a technology available that allows us to utilize the CO2, not just capture it, but purify it and utilize it back in industry. Mm. So one of the examples that I use of our technology, we don't use any hazardous substances. Um, And actually in comparison to existing technology, we're much smaller, you know, we're much uh, lower cost. And the fact that we don't use any hazardous substances in our process means that the food and drinks industry, for example, would be quite happy to utilize the CO2. Okay. So that kind of brings me on to one you know one point one of the projects that we're working on which is you know and and your listeners can certainly go out and google it unilever procter and gamble basf tata steel there is a project a groundbreaking project that is happening right now we are providing the technology for it we are taking we're taking industry emissions from steel and paper mills we're capturing those emissions and we are creating something called surfactants so surfactants is any product that you have that has soap in it that separates your grease from your water. So mm. it's your shampoos, your shower gels, your cleaning products. And yeah, you know, if you think Johnston Matthew, Unilever, Procter and Gamble, a lot of their products have, they use virgin fossil fuel for surfactants. Yeah. So the idea is that we capture the CO2 emissions from some of the dirtiest industries to prove that it can be done from some of the dirtiest industries. Wow. We create surfactants that go into these products, therefore removing reliance off of virgin fossil fuel until we get to a solution that we don't need to use virgin fossil fuel. So it's that transitional, the utilization pieces for that transitional period that we're going through. Fascinating. No, that, okay. That I'm learning actually something. I never thought of it like that. Um, So, so your technology, you mentioned a couple of them, but there's, there's a bunch of different industries that, um, that your technology can apply to, right? I mean, really anything that requires energy input, therefore has any bit of emissions associated with it, like doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, 
energy focused industries. I mean, you, you yeah. on your website, I noticed breweries is one of the industries listed and you kind of talked about it, but do breweries produce a lot of emissions or was it you're, like you were talking about before about the CO2 shortage? Yeah, if you think about, um, right. So our technology is industry agnostic. So any industry that emits CO2 is a yeah. target for us. So you're talking about, you know, breweries, typically their emissions will be quite clean because it's the food and drinks industry. Yeah. Um, so it's, if you think about it, and it, actually let's take carbonated drinks industry as an example, right? So anywhere where there's manufacturing of products, typically there will be emissions involved there. And if you take a, a carbonated drinks industry, for example, say we take one particular producer and they may be emitting CO2 in their process at one end of the factory and not capturing those emissions, not doing anything about those emissions, maybe paying an emissions tax on, on putting that into the atmosphere. On the other side of the factory, they are buying CO2 in, in its liquefied form, transporting it in, turning it back into its gaseous form to then reuse in their carbonated drinks process. Now, straight away, you're going to say to me, that's complete madness, which it is. So, <laughs> you know, and you think about that, you think about the carbon footprint associated with that. Imagine if we could take the carbon emissions from where they are actually, um, where it's going out, we can clean it up, purify it, and then feed it straight back into the carbonated drinks process without having to liquefy it. Then you think of all the energy involved or the transport involved. And what we're finding now that's happening in the industry. So if I, if I take the UK, for example, Typically, a lot of for the food and drinks industry, a lot of the CO2 comes from fertilizer plants. We had a couple of fertilizer plants that closed down during lockdown. Yeah. And now what's happened is the price of CO2 per ton has gone through the roof. It's about £1,200 a ton um, for okay. food grade CO2 because it's being imported. Now, wow. yeah, so what's happening is we've got this cross you know, CO2 going all over the place when actually we could potentially be capturing what we're already emitting and cleaning yeah. that up and so with technology evolving it means that we're no longer having to use these old dated or at least we're hoping that we no longer have to use these old dated technologies where the only solution is to stick it underground and let's yeah. be honest that's contentious on its own it's contentious and by 2030 or by this date you know we were hoping that we would have been storing large quantities of co2 underground now mm. if you think about carbon capture and storage we are looking at CO2 as a waste. And then there's a, a linear graph. It's linear. We see we look at CO2 as a waste and we take it to storage, which effectively is landfill. With yeah. CO2 utilization, we're looking at CO2 as a commodity and we're utilizing that to create what we call a circular carbon economy. So we yeah. just continuously and it can be used. Surfactants is one. You know, we can do diesel there are technologies now that do aviation fuel yeah. um and if you imagine you know be honest we're not going to be flying around in hydrogen planes anytime soon so we know that we're going to be using fossil fuels for a very long time still so why not create a fossil fuel from the fossil fuel that we are already emitting and create yeah. that circular carbon economy and then you might ask me well does it really make sense because not only you're capturing it but then at the same time you're burning it again in a plane or in a ship or in a in a vehicle. And there's a lot more science behind it. Again, I'm not technical, but the science behind it tells us that every single time we capture and purify it, actually what we burn is a lot cleaner than what we would have burnt had it have been a, a virgin fossil fuel. So okay. every single time the cycle goes round, it cleans up 
that that fuel or that whatever that is it can go into chemicals methanol ethanol we use virgin fossil fuel for them this unilever project it has the ability to remove 15 to 20 million tons of co2 a year just in the uk alone just by creating oh, wow. surfactants so when we add that all up you know we're thinking to ourselves there are so many potentially so many more initiatives we could look at some of these groundbreaking projects that allow us to say okay we know we're going to be using virgin fossil we know we're going to be extracting oil for a very long time why not clean up the whole industry until we get to a point where we can comfortably securely store in large quantities co2 underground in in old reservoirs and we're not there yet we're not there yet interesting so it 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 makes me think like when you know a lot of times there's there's groups that i guess dislike the production of oil and gas but the reality is in the petrochem space a lot it's it's not just for driving cars um obviously it's used for so many different things and like you're saying by using your technology and and using the co2 that's being emitted you can create that circular economy which hopefully reduces the dependency on uh i think you're referring to as virgin fossil fuel right that's correct yeah yeah so ultimately and, and i say all that to say is like when we get to a point globally where we can reduce the demand for oil and mm-hmm. gas, that's mm-hmm. where then we can start, you know, well, I guess start, but hopefully accelerate a lot of these goals that have been put in place, which is kind of a whole nother topic in discussion. But what, what I'm hearing is through technologies like yours, you can ultimately help reduce the overall demand for something that we use already. So that that's, that's interesting. I, again, I've never really thought of it like that. And it's, it's not, Again, I don't play in this world really much, but it's a, it's very interesting to me to hear how you've explained it. So, and it, and it sounds so obvious to me. Like, why wouldn't every company yeah. does any bit of manufacturing jump on this? So, I'm curious. Like, what since starting and and now that you're going, what what's the biggest market challenge that you face for just further growth and further scale? Because it conceptually it makes so much sense. It's like, why wouldn't yeah. we do stuff like this? There is um. In all honesty, and there is a huge lack of education out there, um, absolutely massive. Okay. I think there is this understanding that 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 capturing the CO two and um, you know sending it to for storage, i.e., waste, uh, treating it as a waste, is the way forward. And ultimately, what you're doing yeah. is you're just taking the you're taking the problem and you're putting it somewhere else, and you're saying we'll just continue producing oil and gas and keep being reliant on this on this industry because we can just store it in the in the reservoirs. So it's not a problem. We can just remove it and store it. But the question you have to ask yourself, and which I always say to um, to many people that I speak to, a big part of what we do, um, it, we don't go through a normal sales process. Our sales process probably starts with about three hours, three separate meetings on educating the client. Yeah. Um, because they don't know what to do they don't know what technologies are out there they don't know the kind of what questions they don't know what questions to ask people like us what do i need to know in order to qualify what technology i should use or whether or not this solution is best for me so we always say when you're looking at a technology ask two questions the first question which is probably the most important the first question you need to ask is what is the energy consumption of this technology because let's be honest if it is massively energy consuming then it doesn't really justify the cost. And secondly, that's where a lot of clients get stuck. They think they want carbon capture and then they get so far down the line with a dating technology and they say, oh, 
where a waste of energy plant, we're in the, we're in the business of generating power to sell, but 65% of our power will go to powering the carbon capture plant if we put the <laughs> carbon capture. You know, just economically, it doesn't make sense. So clients often yeah. don't ask those questions. The second right. question, which I feel is probably the most important question, is what is the carbon efficiency? I.e., if you are capturing 10 tons of CO2, are you using nine tons of CO2 to do it? Right. And that is a question that is never asked. And these dated technologies are not very efficient. So our technology, for example, and this involves doing something called a full life cycle analysis of a technology. So when you do the full life cycle analysis, you can document what the energy requirement is. You can document how carbon efficient it is. And our technology on a worst case basis is 89% efficient. That's worst case, assuming we can't do any energy recovery. So as you can imagine, massively appealing to industry. So the biggest barrier to us, and actually it doesn't become a barrier because we can educate on it, but it's the time that's involved in educating. And I do lots, you know, I speak at conferences. I'm asked to come and speak a lot on this topic. We're Mm. not anti, we're not anti storage, which some people think we are. We're, we're pro storage, but what we believe is storage isn't quite there yet. And we can see that in the UK, you know, licenses are not being granted in the way that we wanted them to be. Certainly in the U S there are only two class six wells that have been approved. So it's a massive, you know, there's lots of discussion around the barriers for storage. And what we're saying is how many more years do we have to wait until we're comfortably allowed to store you know how soon we were told just the other day that you know we'd be lucky if the temperature rise was anything below 2.5 degrees our target was 1.5 degrees so what that's saying to me is we need to do something now not tomorrow not in six years time when we might get the licenses to store and then maybe another 10 years before we can do it in large quantities we need to do something now yeah no it's uh again i think to your point the education piece is is critical because like to your point, I didn't know. I would have made some lofty assumptions going into this, which now clearly I've I've are different. And and now that I've actually understand more, so what I guess what the potential that CO two has and what you can do and some you know, and so I'm so okay. So I'm curious. So you have essentially these like let's look like a little bit more operationally to, to so people can visualize. So there's there's I guess a unit that captures it, which then does it go into some sort of tank and then you sell that or how, how can you kind of explain like the, the business, the sure. scope of your business or the jobs that you would do? Yeah. So typically we would tap into, um, you know, a flu, a flu stack, for example, and we would extract whatever amount of emissions we needed to do for that particular job. Mm-hmm. And we would take all the gases and, you know, that those gases might include all sorts of gases. It might include nitrogen, for example, oxygen, nitrogen, CO2. Yeah. The idea is that we want to only separate the CO2. So what our sophisticated technology does is it separates the CO2. And then what you end up with, and the gases that we don't need, we vent back up through. And they're typically not as harmful, but we vent them back up through. Because what we're interested in mm. is, is the CO2. Dude. That's the stuff that's in, in vast quantities that's harming our planet, right? So okay. we capture the CO2. And then what we do is we purify that to whatever the utilization option is. So if you take, for example, we can create aggregates that go into your construction material but you don't need 99.5 percent purity Um, all you need is 50 percent purity but because there's very little technology out there that can produce the 50 percent purity it means that the construction industry are having to buy a very expensive 99.5 percent purity of co2 for construction so 
one of the key pieces and actually where our patent sits, our IP sits, is that we are able to almost dial up or dial down the purity depending on what we want to do with the CO2. So medical grade, sort of your lab grade CO2 is 99.95%. We could do 99.95%, for example. But what we then do after that, again, it depends on what it's being used for. So typically we would liquefy it. So we take the gases, we have a liquefaction system and we liquefy it and then it gets stored in tanks for the likes of Lindy, BAC, Air Liquide or Air Products, for example, to come and collect and then resell into the market. Or we can add the downstream technology. So say, for example, we wanted aggregates for construction. We add containerized solutions from a technology provider and that CO2 gets liquefied goes into their technology and comes out as aggregates the other side. And then you can do the same if there's, you know, catalysts for creating aviation fuel or diesel. The idea is that we are moving away from big plants and we're moving towards containerized, modularized systems. And that's what we are. We're containerized, modularized, and we're looking at partnering with downstream technologies that are the same. That way, when I go to a client and I say to a client, a client comes to me and says, I want to capture CO2. I mean, I'll give you an example. We had a large client a couple of months ago came to us and said, we want you to capture 5,000 tons of CO2 so that we can store it. And I said to them, okay, well, if I capture 5,000 tons of CO2 for you tomorrow, what are you going to do with it? Of course, there's no option to store it right now in the UK. So okay. their answer was, okay, fair point. We don't actually know what we're going to do with it. So I spent the next couple of conversations educating them on the utilization piece. They went away and spoke to one of the industrial gas companies and they came back to us and they said, right, we've got a buyer if you can liquefy it to food grade. But the condition is that you're not going to be using any hazardous substances. Otherwise, they don't want it. And we said, no, we don't use anything hazardous. Typically, what's used in carbon capture is something called amines. Um, And if we're not using amines, then they're happy to take it away for us and pay the client. If you look at carbon capture and storage, you capture the CO2 at cost you um, purify it, you compress it, you liquefy it, you transport it, you inject it, and then you monitor, we think for a thousand years plus, we don't actually know how long it takes to stabilize. And that is done at cost. We're asking companies to do that at cost. And then what we're saying is, we're saying to our governments, can you please give us some money to do it? So that's why we've got so many barriers. Whereas what we do is we capture the CO2, from that captured CO2, we can purify for utilization, we can create high value carbon credits. Remember we spoke about carbon credits. Yeah. If you can measure it, if you can measure it, you can verify it. If you can verify it, it's genuine. So we can create high value carbon credits and the utilization piece, we can create multiple revenue streams for businesses. Right. So no, typically, yeah, it changes the game completely. Yeah. Suddenly it's available to everyone, industries, are, big and small. Are there a lot of companies that you use your technology that, end up creating surf surfactants to sell on an open market like is that something that happens or no so that's that that hasn't been done yet so that's the project that we're doing with unilever um so that hopefully by the end of the year we should have um we should well the target is next next november to complete that project but that's the whole purpose of all these large blue chip companies coming together um because mm. that's what you need and remember i talked about collaboration right this is an example of co-creation everybody is coming together and they're all adding their bit you know unilever says we'll do this bit tata still say we do this bit you know the paper mills say we do this but basf who are the manufacturers chemical manufacturers say we'll we'll do the you know the chemical part 
and we'll all come together to create this surfactant. We don't call it decarbonization, we call it defossilization. So slightly different wording, but it, it, it differentiates it from decarbonization. But the idea is that we remove reliance off virgin fossil fuel and yeah. all these companies are coming together to do this, to provide their own, their expertise. So we've not got to surfactants yet, but we should have very soon. Interesting. Do, are you working with any companies in the US? You don't have to name them, but are, do you have much of a presence here? Uh, we don't have much of a presence in the US yet, although we are in discussions with quite a few, because obviously the US have got Inflation Reduction Act, which yeah. incentivizes carbon capture, probably incentivizes carbon capture and storage more than it does utilization. But there is incentivization for utilization. So um, we are in a number of discussions with the industries, including gas plants in the US, that are looking to um, capture the CO2 emissions and you know, if you think about it, as soon as the Inflation Reduction Act came into play, suddenly carbon capture became absolutely huge in the US because guess what? It enables businesses to make a little bit of money from it exactly. um, or, to, yeah. or, or have tax, incent or tax incentives. So huh. now what we're saying to businesses is, OK, in the US, you've got we can create the carbon credits. We can create multiple revenue streams. And guess what? You've got the IRA as well to create those added incentives. So the US market for us is probably the biggest in the world right now. It's absolutely huge. So what you're finding in the US is a lot of carbon capture companies are moving to the US to take advantage of particularly the, the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Wow. No, that's fascinating. I, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, I have more questions, but we're, I mean, I've taken way more of your time than I probably <laughs> should have. So I, I appreciate you sitting in and, 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 uh, and yeah, having this conversation. Um, I'm going to wrap things up, but before we close out, I, I always like to end the conversation. If you, if you have just one more minute, uh, or unless you have to go, if you need to go, nope. we can close it up. Okay. No, that's well, good. Just, go for it. Just give me a, a, one more minute here. So I'm, I'm curious, um, being a, obviously you have a lot going on, a wonderful wife, mother, you know, involved with different companies. Do you have any daily habits or routines that you do that are, that are non-negotiable every single day, whether it be morning or night? that help contribute to your success, to your focus, and to just keep your glass full? Because I would imagine, I mean, you can't pour from an empty cup and it, I feel like you pour quite a bit. Um, and so I'm curious, do you, do you have any daily habits or routines? Um, not really, no. I think um, okay. one of the things I'm very, uh, I feel quite strongly about is, is not giving myself the time to procrastinate. Um, okay. Because... <laughs> And that's what probably why I start my day very early. Um, I, I do have, you know, I can wake up with a million things in my head. And if I procrastinate, then those things turn into, it turns into anxieties. Um, yeah. So I've always been very much a get up and just do and go. Um, and I feel that one of the things that I think is really important is to start your day early. Um, and if you start your day early, you certainly feel like, you know, quite often I talk about levels of in intelligence and we have each and every one of us have three levels of intelligence. And one of those levels of intelligence is what I call motivational intelligence. And there's a whole load of psychological mm -hmm. theory behind this, mainly in the US. But if you look at your motivational intelligence, that's the one that really that's the one that drives you to despite failures. It drives you to continue. You tap into that motivational intelligence and you don't allow failures to determine what you're going to do next. So one of the things I do do is if I and this, I do this religiously, everybody has instances where things don't go 
how they wanted them to go. They don't pan out the way they wanted them to pan out. And rather than look at that as failure or look at that as well, and as adults, we do it, you know, oh, well, that didn't work, so I'm not going to do it again, or I'm not going to try again. Whereas yeah. as, ch- as children, we have very high levels of motivational intelligence. So if you imagine your child yeah. gets on a bike, they fall off, they get back on, they fall off, they get back on until they can ride that bike. As adults, we get on the bike, we fall off, and then we say, well, I'm not doing that again. Um, so I religiously, I make sure that when I'm not good at something or when I fail at something, I will get up and I will do it again without having to think about my failure I just start again or yeah, it's that whole practice makes perfect. So yeah. it's a, it's a mindset that you have to get yourself into. Okay. That didn't work, but what did I take away from it? That was positive. And I always take the positive out of whatever it would normally be deemed for most people as negative. That's a massive mindset change. And if anybody's interested, Google motivational intelligence and read up about it because one yeah. of the biggest things that you can do is understand how it works and then you can change your mindset and change the way that you behave from that. So that's the one thing that I would leave you with. Wow. No, that's awesome. I think that's a great way to close out motivational intelligence. I'll have to definitely take a look at that. That's super interesting to me. Um, Bina, again, thank you so much. Real quick, and you don't have to spell it out or anything, but what's the best way for people to reach out? I'm assuming LinkedIn, do you, do there, are there any other social platforms that you create content or edu- or like informational content on or no I wish I had the time <laughs> one day I'll find more time to put some stuff out there I do I speak at lots of conferences and stuff so uh, you know okay. and there's s- several platforms but um, mainly LinkedIn LinkedIn is the best way for me great well I'll put your LinkedIn uh, link in the show notes I'll also put uh, a link to your website um, and some of the other things that you're involved with. Um, and again, for the listeners, please, uh, if you could share this, uh, obviously there's been a ton of good information here. Um, and, and again, I just, I ask that you share it review, um, and just, you know, reach out to, to Bina and connect with her on LinkedIn. I think that'd be great. And for all, uh, all the listeners out there, always remember everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me. Thanks everybody. Have you ever thought about what a podcast could do for your B2B business? Well, you might be surprised by the benefits it could offer. Firstly, podcasts provide an amazing opportunity to establish your brand as an industry thought leader. By sharing your insights, experiences, and expert opinions, you position yourself as an authority, gaining the trust and the respect of your audience. Secondly, hosting a podcast is a fantastic way to engage your customers on a deeper level. It's not just about promoting your products and services, it's about providing value through engaging content, fostering strong relationships, and loyalty among your listeners. Oh, and did I mention networking? Yes, that's a huge part. Podcasts are an incredible networking tool. When you interview guests from your industry, you're not only creating valuable content, but you're also building relationships that can lead to future partnerships and collaborations. But we know starting a podcast can feel daunting. I've had several people reach out to me lately asking how to create a podcast, and that's where I'm going to try and come in and help. I'm here to help you navigate the podcast world. Reach out to me for a 15-minute call where we can discuss your podcasting ambitions. Whether you're starting from scratch or simply looking to improve your existing show, I'm here to help. And guess what? I have a playbook too, a step-by-step guide to launching a successful podcast, and I can't wait to share it with you. This playbook has everything from topic brainstorming to technical setup to effective promotion strategies, all the essentials for a thriving podcast. So why wait? Get in touch today and let's embark on this podcasting journey together. After all, your voice deserves to be heard. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.